Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Although the New Zealand wars, fought between 1845 and 1872, have profoundly shaped our country, they have been little acknowledged, taught and understood. Historian Vincent O'Malley presents an introduction to the causes, course and consequences of these defining conflicts fought between groups of Māori and the Crown in his new book, The New Zealand Wars, Ngā Pākanga o Aotearoa. He delivers the 2019 Michael King Memorial Lecture. We hope you enjoy. On the 15th of March this year, Muslim New Zealanders praying peacefully in their places of worship were horrifically attacked and 51 people cruelly murdered. It was a horrendous and incomprehensible attack that left me and most New Zealanders in grief and tears. As a nation, we mourned for what had happened. It was also described as an unprecedented act of violence, the likes of which we'd never seen before on our shores. In this narrative, our innocence had been lost. But here's the thing, it wasn't unprecedented. And for me, the victims of this vile act deserve the dignity of truth. As a nation, we need to be honest with ourselves. In the 19th century, Māori communities across the North Island were also attacked and killed in large numbers, sometimes in similarly horrific circumstances. So in this talk, I want to speak to that history, why it matters and why we as a nation need to do more to remember these darker episodes from our past, particularly as a key step towards genuine reconciliation and healing. And I think now more than ever, we really need that and we need those conversations. But before I do, um, I'd just like to thank Anne O'Brien and her team from the festival for the invitation to deliver this prestigious lecture. I really am honoured uh, by the invitation. And I'd also um, like to take a moment to pay tribute to Michael King, the remarkable historian and writer after whom this lecture is named. He was a trailblazer in so many different ways, um, including writing scholarly history that was designed to be read by a wide audience, um, and also doing so for most of his career outside the formal settings of academia. You know, every author of non-fiction um, talks of reaching the, the, the general reader, but unlike many of us, he actually did it. And he also understood the importance of having a conversation with New Zealanders about, about our history and why it matters. So, what were the New Zealand Wars? Well, these were a series of conflicts that I'd suggest profoundly shaped the course and direction of our nation's history. Fought between the Crown and various groups of Māori between 1845 and 1872, the wars touched many aspects of life in 19th century New Zealand, actually even in regions um, that were spared actual fighting. And so physical remnants or reminders from these wars can be found all over the country, whether in central Auckland right here, in Wellington, Dunedin, or in rural locations such as Te Poriri or Te Awamutu. And I think many New Zealanders, Māori and Pākehā, can probably trace descent from at least one ancestor caught up in these wars. Some people will have um, phobias who fought on both sides, actually. So the wars are an integral part of the New Zealand story, but we haven't always cared to remember or acknowledge them. For much of the period since 1872, when the, the wars ended, Pākehā have either clung to a quite a romanticised version of these wars that emphasised them as um, something that were chivalrous and, and heroic, but this was kind of devoid of the more disturbing truths. Um, and when that was no longer tenable, that version of the history, they simply chose to ignore these conflicts altogether, like that they didn't exist, they never happened. But this is our story, it is our history, and it happened here in this place quite recently in historical terms, and it had profound consequences for what New Zealand was and what it would become. 
So I think that's why taking time to learn about, acknowledge and remember these conflicts is really important today. Well, to say that the wars were fought between Māori and the Crown is slightly misleading, though. For one thing, uh, Māori fought on both sides. Sometimes particular Māori switched sides, fighting for the Crown and then against it, or vice versa. That wasn't so much evidence of inconsistency or confusion, but really it pointed to the fact that local and tribal interests were very much to the fore when these allegiances were decided. And those could shift quite quickly depending on the context. But really, as far as the Crown was concerned, Māori were either for it or against it. So neutrality, tempting as that might be to many Māori communities, wasn't considered a valid or acceptable option. And so in these circumstances, entire communities are literally making life or death decisions. British Imperial troops did the bulk of the fighting on the Crown side before 1865. And for the rank and file soldier in the British Army, life at this time was, was tough. The pay was poor, living conditions were often squalid and alcoholism was rife. Discipline was really harsh including brutal public floggings that sometimes left grown men who witnessed them in tears. And you know, desertion, obviously, was widespread. Um, and just as loyalist Māori had their own reasons um, for fighting, so did a lot of those who fought for the British Army. The incredible thing uh, is that around two-thirds of the rank-and-file soldiers who served in New Zealand were Irish. We almost need to call it the Irish Army rather than the British Army. And one, one thing that fascinates me is what did these Irishmen think of fighting this war of conquest and dispossession, um, for which really their own country had served as the original blueprint? You know, Ireland is, is, the, is the sort of template for, for British imperialism. Well, that's, that's a slightly tricky thing to find out because a lot of those men were illiterate, so they didn't leave behind letters and diaries recounting their experiences and setting out their thoughts. But there is enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that a lot of them became increasingly disillusioned with what they're being asked to do, querying why they should be tasked with robbing Māori of their lands um, for the exclusive benefit of settlers in New Zealand. And at the same time that they're starting to have these sorts, um, people in Britain, British taxpayers, are wondering why they should fund this war on the other side of the globe, that they derive no benefit from at all. A lot of the, the troops who fought in New Zealand um, sought their discharge here. So the British Army leaves in 1870, but a lot of the individual soldiers remained behind. And sometimes, um, sometimes those soldiers marry Māori women from the very same iwi that they'd recently, recently been fighting against. So after 1866, colonial troops, um, including conscripted militia, volunteers, military settlers, specialist units, and the armed constabulary, along with their Māori allies, are solely responsible for the wars. So these are no longer a British war, they're a New Zealand war, and they enter a much darker uh, and more brutal phase. And the Māori communities that they're fighting against, they don't have standing armies. They're a civilian population, and they're basically fighting in defence of their homes and their lives. In many cases, with weapons that dated back um, decades, often without artillery or, or, or ammunition, and Compare that with the Crown, which had, you know, the Crown had armour-plated steamers and Māori had wooden canoes, and they were outnumbered in most of these conflicts by three or four to one. You know, Britain was the world's leading superpower at the, this time in the mid-19th century. Really, it should have been no contest, and under these circumstances, the, the, the sheer fact that Māori survived is, is quite remarkable. To, to make matters even worse, in nearly all of these conflicts, Māori were fighting against their will in, in, in wars that had been begun uh, or provoked by the Crown. So if we, 
if we ask what was the cause of the New Zealand wars, we we're probably setting off in the wrong direction. You know, wars are a complex series of events, and often there's a whole series of things that contribute to them. There might be, although there might be a single catalyst, that, you know, the spark that lights the flame, there's usually a whole series of underlying causes. And in this case, we need to remember that these are a whole series of, of individual wars that each had their own distinct features and their own um, causes. But I think we can also discern some common themes as well. So let's begin with the obvious one, um, land whenua. In short, Māori had it and the British wanted it. Something had to give, as, especially as the pace of British migration to New Zealand increased sharply after 1840. Um, even before 1840, private parties claimed to have purchased more land than there was in New Zealand. Um, so uh, that was an interesting um, thing. Um, and they were led by the New Zealand Company, who um, their provocative actions led to war at, or led to conflict at Waido in 1843. It's, it's disputable whether that is, fits the description of war. And at Hiratonga, or the Hutt Valley, three years later, 1846. Um, and I think the anniversary of the Bukots Farm um, conflict was um, just the other day. After 1840, the government assumes a sole right to purchase Māori lands under Article 2 of the treaty, even though a lot of Māori um, thought that that only, only gave the Crown the first right to, to, to offer to, to purchase land rather than a, an outright monopoly. So you get this, these massive land purchases, land, pu land purchases that follow after that. Canterbury purchased in 1848, for example, 20 million acres, nearly a third of the country, purchased for about 2,000 pounds and just a few thousand miserable, um, few thousand acres of miserable reserves for Naitahu left to live on. And although Māori often understood these transactions quite differently from the Crown and, and they continued to use these lands which were supposedly sold, there's a, real, there's a huge influx of settlers in the 1850s and that pushes Māori to the fringes of colonial society. And a lot of rangatira become concerned about the impact of these transactions. They fear that the country is slipping out of their hands piece by piece with their own future really a doubtful one as servants to the settlers. So in this respect, that they understood that with the passing of land went actual control. And so some tribes respond to that by, by consciously opposing further land sales. And this was a strong impetus behind the installation of the Māori King in 1858. And indeed, some parking at the time went so far as to brand that as a land league. So land is an important and even a really critical factor in the wars. But as some historians have pointed out, there are real problems with attributing the wars to land as solely to land. For one thing, it wasn't the settlers, but governors who were responsible for sending troops into action. And actually, they weren't always sympathetic to the land hunger of the settlers. And for Māori, for many Māori at this time, fears over loss of land feed into these even deeper concerns about their own place in the rapidly changing colony. This is bigger than a question of just land ownership. It went to the heart of how Māori and Pākehā would live together in this country. So the question was, would Māori share the fate of many other Indigenous peoples around the globe, being reduced to a state of, of subservience and even facing the, the prospect of total ext extinction? Or was New Zealand somehow different, you know, this, this idea of, of exceptionalism, with the promises held out in the Treaty of Waitangi that Māori land ownership would be scrupulously recognised and protected, that Māori rights to manage their own affairs would be acknowledged, and that Māori would play a full role alongside the settlers in administering the affairs of the colony. Would these things be upheld by the Crown? Would we be different from the normal experience of British imperialism? And I think at heart, these, these tensions, these issues, um, centre around different understandings of the treaty itself. 
1840, the British Crown formally proclaimed, proclaimed sovereignty over the islands of New Zealand. Yet all but a handful of the rangatira signed a Māori language version of the treaty that most scholars today agree stopped stop some way short of ceding sovereignty to the Crown. So kawanatanga, the term that's used in the treaty, is usually translated as governance um, or governorship. And on the other hand, Māori communities were promised tino rangatira tanga, full chiefly authority over their own lands and resources, and they clearly expected ongoing control over their own affairs. And so you've got this tension between um, increasing Crown assertions of unbridled sovereignty. On the other hand, Māori expectations of, of continued chiefly authority, and this provides a key driver for these conflicts that follow. So at their core, a lot of these conflicts raise the same question. Whose version and understanding of what had, what had been entered into in 1840 was going to prevail? So the treaty has signed in that year, but you know, contrary to uh, popular misconceptions, New Zealand really wasn't magically transformed into a, a, a British colony ruled from the centre overnight. In a lot of places, things didn't really change much on the ground after 1840 at all. So outside a few small coastal pockets of European settlement, Crown sovereignty remains for a lot of this time um, more a matter of negotiation and persuasion with Māori communities and enforcement. The Crown's just not in a position to impose its will on Māori in the 1840s and 1850s. And Iwi in a lot of regions continued to manage their own affairs just as they always had. But what the treaty did do is introduce a new player to the scene in the form of the Crown, as well as signalling the start of a period of mass British migration to New Zealand that would see Māori reduced to a minority in their own country within two decades. And here we have the, the graph, and I think this is, this is a telling graph. The arrow there is in about 1860, when the, the main sequence of wars start, that they last through until 1872. Two years prior to that, in 1858, um, Māori become outnumbered in their own country for the first time ever. And it's no coincidence that conflict um, begins so soon after that, because Pākehā at last feel that they are in a position to impose their will on Māori, that their version of the treaty that says we're in charge will be the one that will prevail. And a lot of these settlers, are, you know, they hadn't come halfway around the world to play second fiddle to a group of people that they regarded as inferior to themselves. So you've got these lurking Victorian assumptions of racial dominance um, that contribute further to the erosion in relationships with Māori, um, especially once the newcomers felt powerful enough to, to challenge their hosts. And Māori may have hoped or expected to enter into this partnership that would benefit both people, but Pākehā expected to be in charge. And as, set, as settlers start to, to sense that the balance of power is shifting in their favour, the old order, which is based on a kind of middle ground where both people um, mostly manage to rub along with one another most of the time, it gives way to this much darker phase where settlers are saying, we're ready to take control. That is our destiny. So settlers increasingly demand the right to govern themselves, and you get a new parliament that's established in 1854 that meets right here in Auckland. But Māori are not represented in that parliament at all uh, and prior to 1868, and most aren't even eligible to participate in elections. So this new parliament is composed solely of Pākehā and only there to represent their interests. And you know that exclusion is felt by a lot of rangatira who'd been promised this notion of partnership in the treaty, but suddenly they find themselves excluded from the mechanisms of governance. And you know that wasn't what they signed up into, wasn't what they signed up to in the treaty at all. And so successive New Zealand governments at this time seem more intent on subjecting Māori to British laws 
than recognising any right to administer their own affairs under Article 2 of the Treaty. And this only intensifies really after the emergence of the Kingitanga or the Māori King movement in 1858. So it's been suggested that this um, government determination to, to achieve an unbridled sovereignty, to turn its back on Tutility and instead uphold a narrow version of the Treaty, uh, that can really be seen as an overarching cause of the wars as a whole. It's, it's a theme that runs through all of these conflicts. And once the government had achieved a position of dominance, then a whole lot of things would follow from that, including the resumption of large-scale land purchasing, um, and also the imposition of British law on Māori communities, uh, and then the enforced assimilation of Māori into settler society. So there are really huge, huge consequences that are riding on the outcome of these conflicts. And in the earlier period of European settlement, Pākehā had been forced to, to tolerate Māori and their customs, really because they had no choice but to do anything else. And this old order, it worked most of the time because both parties had things that they wanted from the other that they couldn't gain by force. They'd learnt that they needed to cooperate, not that they wanted to, but they had to. And that changes over time. As I said before, by 1858, settlers outnumber Māori for the first time, and there is this, this new assumption that, that we are at last in a position to, to assert our assumed natural dominance. So it's not a case in terms of, of talking about the relative importance of land versus sovereignty when you're talking about the causes of the wars, because these are really closely interconnected. Without land, sovereignty means, means little, and sovereignty, or at least something a, 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 a approximating the meaningful assertion of authority and control, made it all the easier to acquire land and therefore to, reinf to reinforce that position of dominance. So these two things are really linked, land and sovereignty. And I think in some ways to separate them out as distinct features is to miss the extent to which they're so, so closely bound together in the 19th century. Um, and of course underlying all this as well, as I mentioned, are these ideas, these British ideas about race and hierarchy that influenced the way that many settlers treated and viewed Māori. Anglo-Saxons expected to be in charge because they were at the apex of their own imagined racial hierarchy. So that's a brief, a brief potted summary of some of the main causes of the wars. And I'm going to give a briefer outline now um, of the actual course of these, because otherwise that would just be a whole series of um, dates and places, and obviously you can get that detail in my book. So the wars begin in Northland in 1845 when Honeheke and Kawati take up arms against the Crown at Ohaiwai, Ruapekapeka and elsewhere, and there are further conflicts uh, in the Wellington-Whanganui region in the mid-1840s as well. But then you have this long period of peace that follows. Through the 1850s, Māori devote much of their energies to agriculture and trade. And actually, at this time, through the 1850s, Māori are the leading drivers of the New Zealand economy, generating most of our export income. And people just don't know that. They, they don't know this history of um, remarkable Māori commercial success and endeavour that is taken away almost overnight in the wars that follow in the 1860s. So not only are they producing enormous um, export income for the country, they're also feeding the settlers in towns like Auckland. And uh, one of the Auckland newspapers in the 1840s talks about the fact that were it not for the produce that Māori brought to the town each week, the settlers would have literally starved to death. So that is just how dependent Pākehā in this country were on Māori through this period in the 1840s and 1850s. So this long period of peace is shattered in March 1860 um, when Crown forces attacked Māori in Taranaki, who are protesting the sale of their lands at Waitara. 
and, and, and that transaction has been imposed by the Crown with only minority support from Te Atiawa, the owners of the land. And Te Atiawa, in, a, in an effort to de-escalate this, this, this growing tension in Taranaki before conflict breaks out, send out elderly Kuia to, uh, to put out the survey pegs on the land that the Crown is saying that, that, that it had purchased. The government responds by calling that an act of rebellion um, and they declare martial law in Taranaki and the war breaks out very soon after uh, in March 1860 at, at uh, Te and it ends inconclusively a year later, in March 1861. And a big reason why it ends in that way is Taranaki Māori receive assistance from Waikato and Ngāti Maniapoto iwi and others. And, and that's, that's a really crucial uh, factor in the Crown's inability to win that war and to impose its will. So that aid that, that Waikato um, provide Taranaki Māori, along with trumped up rumours that um, Tainui Māori are uh, intent on invading the settlement of Auckland and massacring its residents um, is used to justify the invasion of Waikato in July 1863. And Waikato had been the home since 1858 to the Māori king. Governor George Grey, um, who arrives in New Zealand for his, his second governorship in September 1861, is determined to destroy the Kingitanga. Um, and so in this way, what Wurimu Tamihana described as the Great War for New Zealand breaks out quite a short distance from here. And, you know, Wurimu Tamihana's quote, the Great War for New Zealand, was provided the basis um, for the title for my last book. And it really sums up the book's um, core thesis and argument, which is that this was the defining conflict in New Zealand history, way more so than World War I and World War II. And it had profound consequences for the nation as a whole. And in that conflict, um, a number of, of um, pretty awful things happen. Um, at Rangiriri, the people of the Pa are, are taken prisoner under a white flag of truce. Um, at Rangiafia, um, people are torched to death inside their whare um, by colonial forces. And that's, that's a source of enormous pain for, for Tainui today. At Arako, um, a cavalry is unleashed against the occupants of the Pa as they, they run for their lives on foot attempting to flee from the site. And over, the, over half of the people at Arako are, are killed, uh, most of them being, being, being hunted down by men on horseback, including documented cases of female prisoners who are bayoneted by troops in cold blood. So despite later Pākehā attempts to depict the Waikato War especially as a chivalrous and noble one, there's nothing noble or glorious about any of this. It, you know, it was a, a brutal and bloody affair, and it's time as a nation that we confronted that truth. And the Waikato War is far from an end to the fighting either. The indiscriminate and sweeping nature of Crown actions, um, which has seen large numbers of Māori communities attacked, um, and their lands confiscated really in a, quite an indiscriminate way. It didn't matter whether you had fought against the Crown or fought or attempted to remain neutral. Your lands were liable to confiscation by the Crown. And understandably, in those circumstances, there are a whole bunch of new resistance, resistance movements that emerge in Māori communities to attempt to hold on to what they have left, their lives and their lands. And you see renewed warfare at Taranaki and further conflicts in the Bar Pliny, um, the East Coast and elsewhere across the central North Island, including in the late 1860s, the emergence of two remarkable prophets and military leaders, um, Tutukawaru and Tukoti. 
So late in 1868, um, there's a series of quite spectacular crown defeats. Um, there's one at Tenutu Otomanu in Taranaki um, that really shakes a colony. Um, and this is, this is um, a, around the same time as the attack on, on Māori and Pākehā communities at Turanga at Matawhiro. And the colony is facing um, almost an existential crisis. Um, a lot of Pākehā start to think that they're going to actually lose this war. And they become very bitter towards Britain, um, who's, who had withdrawn most of uh, the British troops, uh, and those who remained behind were unable to fight. And, and so there's this um, falling out with, with the, the so-called mother country um, and a feeling that, that settlers in New Zealand have been betrayed. And the wars enter a much darker phase um, at this time as well, including um, the extrajudicial execution of 128 Māori prisoners at Natapa near Gisborne in January 1869, which the Waitangi Tribunal um, described as a stain on the history of this nation. Um, again, it's not a story that many people know about. Um, another incident, um, much smaller in scale, but incredibly brutal, is the attack on a group of Māori children at Hanley's Woolshed um, in Taranaki um, a few months earlier. And there you have young children who are attacked by a group of colonial cavalry and, and um, two of the children are killed. Um, and actually John Bryce um, is the leader of the Kaiwi cavalry. He leads that raid on the, on the, the Māori children um, who are out hunting pigs. And years later, there's kind of a, um, an epilogue to this when a, a writer, a historian called George Rusden writes about this and he says that women and children were, were brutally hunted down at Hanley's Woolshed and Bryce sues him for defamation. Bryce eventually wins the case. He, he's awarded £5,000 in damages, which is an enormous sum. And the, the main reason that he wins the case um, is because um, Rusden had said women and children were brutally hunted down. There were no women there, only children. Um, so you have this crisis in late 1868. Then something mysterious happens in Taranaki. To Tukawari's forces disperse, they go home. There are various stories around why that might have been. Um, one of, one of the, the most credible ones is that um, there's an act of adultery and um, to Tukawari's forces believing that he had lost his tapu, that they disperse, they go home. So this threat subsides um, and Tukoti eventually takes refuge in the king country and the, the final shots in the, the hunt for him are fired near Lake Waikanawana in February 1872. Um, then, of course, you have the invasion of the settlement of Parihaka in November 1881. Um, the people of Parihaka, they don't have guns, they don't offer violent resistance. It's, you, you can't even really describe this as part of the wars. It's a consequence of the wars and of the appalling series of invasions and confiscations at Taranaki. Um, but there is no resistance. The armed constabulary that invade the settlement um, are greeted by skipping, singing and dancing children. Um, so the, the, the actual wars themselves end in 1872, but I think the legacy uh, of these conflicts it continues to be felt today in a lot of ways. We still live with the wars. They're, they're everywhere. They're all around us, including right here in central Auckland. But awareness and knowledge of this historical context, I think, is crucially important to fully understanding our present as well. Um, 
and for example, any discussion of contemporary Māori polity that fails to acknowledge this long history of invasion, dispossession and confiscation is really missing a key part of the story. You, you can't understand the present without understanding the history as well. And people who don't understand that history often end up blaming Māori themselves for their predicament and they ignore this wider context. The wider context is that, as I said before, in the 1850s, Māori were the leading drivers of the New Zealand economy. All that is destroyed and taken away from them almost overnight. In South Auckland in July 1863, um, large numbers of Māori who were living there are driven from their lands at gunpoint um, and they carry with them, uh, you know, they take with them only what they can carry. So they leave behind cattle and horses and um, flour mills and their crops, everything. They lose it all. Um, and that, that has consequences that, that you know, um, last over many generations as well. Um, so that, that's a, a key part of the consequences. And the New Zealand Wars are also, um, I think, a, a key part of the reason why Auckland is our largest city today, um, and also why the North Island is, is, is predominates over the South Island today, when actually in the 19th century, for a lot of the time, the reverse was true. The South Island was the bigger, more powerful island. So the wars, I think, were really transformative events in our nation's history much more so, I think, than World War I and World War II. Um, so what were some of the other consequences of these conflicts? Firstly, um, and most obviously, the wars left a lot of people killed or maimed. Um, and we don't know the exact, num exact numbers because there were reasonably accurate returns of, of British and colonial troops that were done. Um, but it's not the same for, for the Māori casualties. There aren't official returns. James Cowan's um, best yes was 4,250 Māori casualties, more than half of them killed, so over 2,000 people killed. Uh, and for the British and colonial troops, 560 uh, killed and another 1,050 wounded. So that gives total casualties of just under 6,000 people, um, so, and two-thirds of the Māori. Um, and you might compare that. In 1859, the Māori, Māori population was 59,000 people. So. 4,000 um, 4, people is quite a big percentage of that. But such a comparison is slightly misleading, of course, because not all Māori are fighting in the New Zealand wars. Um, some areas escape invasion or occupation altogether. And a better guide to the demographic impact of these wars actually might be to zero in on an area that was caught up in these conflicts. And here we begin to see really just how severe those losses were. The Māori population of the Tūranga district or, or Gisborne district was estimated at 1,500 people in 1860. In one single week-long battle in the area at Wairingahika in November 1865, at least 71 Māori were killed and an unknown number injured. So even if we assume that the population had stabilised and was still around 1,500 by 1865, 4.7% of Tūranga Māori died in the space of a week. If we assume a, a roughly similar number of wounded, then the overall casualty rate was something like one in 10 Māori in that district killed or wounded. And actually it gets even worse than that um, because many more Māori at Tūranga die when fighting returns to the district in 1868-69. And the Waitangi Tribunal has estimated that, that during this period around 240 adult males were killed in battle with Crown forces. That's 16% of the total population or an incredible 43% of adult males based on the 1860 figure. And I think if we add to that the, the many women and children who also died or others who were indirect victims of the wars, um, including, for example, people who died in captivity at the Chatham Islands um, when they were held there as prisoners along with Te Kōti, 
um, then the death rate could have easily exceeded 20% of the total population, so one in five Māori in that district killed in the space of four years. Total casualties might have been around 40% of, of all Tūranga Māori, um, once you include the wounded. And you know, that, that's an almost incomprehensible level of loss, 40% of the population. Um, so in the slide here, the blue is um, Tūranga Māori casualties, 1865 to 1869. 20% um, 20, 20 killed, that, that's my best guess, it might be slightly conservative. Um, in World War I, when a huge number of young New Zealand men, including many Māori, died in the trenches and fields of Gallipoli and the Western Front, um, the total casualty rate was about 5.8% of the population, um, including 1.7% killed. Um, so that's the orange line here. And that's often been seen as the greatest bloodbath in New Zealand history, um, but on a, on a per capita basis, at Tūranga, the, the casualty rate is, is more than 10 times higher than that. Um, and Tūranga isn't an isolated example either. And there are lots of other ways in which the wars are felt as well. Um, as I said, through the 1840s and 1850s, the Māori economy is booming. That, that comes to a sudden end after 1860, and a lot of iwi never recover from that. Um, the blows are crippling and almost irreparable one. Directly related to that, um, many iwi suffer I don't know if we can get the next um, the next slide. Doesn't matter. Anyway, I was going to put up a map of the. Um, here we go. Um, directly related to the theme of impoverishment, many iwi also suffer raupatu or the confiscation of their lands. So you have over three million acres of land confiscated under the New Zealand Settlements Act at Waikato, Taranaki, Taronga, the Eastern Bay of Pliny, and also Hawke's Bay, and you have other lands that are taken um, at Gisborne, Waira, Waikato, Moana, under a slightly different confiscation regime. Māori who didn't fight against the Crown were given cast-iron guarantees that their lands would be protected, they, they would be safe. That didn't happen. Their lands were taken from them as well. The Crown didn't really care who they belonged to. Confiscation was applied indiscriminately across entire regions. Um, and there's, there's an official return done in 1900 of Māori rendered landless as a result of the confiscations. And there are thousands and thousands of names on that list. And I'd suggest that behind each name there's a story of dispossession and sometimes exile that would have resonated over many generations. In this respect, I think the New Zealand Wars touched the living along with those yet to be born. And although the government didn't really achieve the crushing victory that it, that it set out to achieve in the wars, it did achieve enough to eventually um, tip, the, tip the scales in its favour. So in this battle between two competing visions of the treaty relationship, it's the Crown's version that wins. And in this conception, it's a treaty of cession and unbridled sovereignty, not of partnership and dialogue. There's no consultation with the Iwiahapu, just an expectation that Māori would comply with the laws of the land. And so by 1865, full responsibility for governing the colony is passed to the New Zealand Parliament. Prior to then, there's a system of dual governance where the governor has a lot of power in making key decisions, especially about deploying troops. But after, after 1865, the settlers are in charge. And you get four Māori MPs um, admitted to Parliament after 1868, but they're outnumbered by the 72 Pākehā ones who often ignore them completely. Um, and there are a number of cases where 
Māori stand up in Parliament to try and um, argue their case, and the Pākehā members just file out, so there's no longer a quorum. Um, they, they can't they can't even have their, their their grievances debated or considered by Parliament. And so, obviously, in these circumstances, the ability of Māori to influence um, or shape legislation is hugely limited. And the control of the country that's achieved through the wars allows the Crown to introduce new policies for prizing Māori from their remaining lands. So in 1865, you get the Native Land Court established, and that individualises land titles. And it means that uh, Pākehā can buy lands from Māori communities without consulting with the iwi, because the title has been individualised. They can just approach individuals within that community. So the whole point of this is to undermine tribal control and tribal authority. And that results in a massive wave of land sales. The Native Land Court has been described as an engine of destruction for Māori society. And it wouldn't have been possible before the Waikato War especially. And the wars also allow the Crown to enforce new policies to encourage Māori assimilation, notably through the Native School System that's established in 1867. And so, you know, the Native Land Court strips Māori of their land and the Native School System strips Māori of their language. And these are direct consequences of the wars. And there's, there's no sympathy for, for Rangatiratanga under such a regime. In effect, the treaty's tossed aside for the next century or more, um, and politicians don't even feel obliged to, to pay lip service to it. And these policies are felt by Māori throughout the country, regardless of whether they, they were caught up in the wars or not. So th these are things that, that directly flow from the wars. And the rough and ready balance of power between Māori and Pākehā that has survived um, since really even before 1840 finally comes to an end. Pākehā are no longer feel either required to or willing to treat Māori as equals. Having assumed effective control over the country in accordance with their long-standing expectations of racial dominance, settlers were unwilling to share power with Māori communities. Instead, it was to be exercised for the exclusive benefit of Pākehā interests. Not until at least the, the 1970s, really, does the situation change um, in any kind of meaningful way. And the wars obviously leave many Māori communities with deeply entrenched grievances, unanswered and, and largely ignored for decades. And we're still attempting to, to unpack and resolve those grievances today. There are, there are still outstanding Raupatu claims in the, in the King Country, for example. And how many people um, knew that just last year the Waitangi Tribunal concluded in one of its reports that Māori non-combatants non at Rangiafia and Arakau had been, quote, massacred by, by British forces, unquote. Really, that's quite extraordinary language that speaks to this, um, speaks to some of these darker episodes from our history. <clears throat> but all of this history is so unfamiliar to many New Zealanders because we never learn about it at school. I didn't learn about it at school. I, I, um, I, you know, it was only years later when I went to university and I discovered New Zealand history and I was blown away by it. And the notion that New Zealand history was boring, that nothing interesting ever happened here, couldn't be further from the truth. And I thought, why didn't I learn about this at school? And I think it's, you know, this is part of our story. And as a nation, we need to take ownership of our history, the good and the bad, all of it, you know, just like grown-ups. So this is about, you know, maturing as a nation. And I think what a nation chooses to remember and forget speaks to its priorities and its sense of identity. We need to move beyond the myth-making and the historical amnesia and openly and honestly confront our past. And that's not about assigning blame, it's, it's just about growing up as a nation, as I said, being big enough and brave enough to own our history warts and all, learning really the trick of standing upright here at last.
And let's consider for a moment some of the imagined narratives around the wars um, that were once deep, deeply entrenched in Pākehā psyches. So in the early 20th century, you get this burst of nostalgia for the pioneering period. And the New Zealand wars are, are kind of reframed as these chivalrous and heroic conflicts between two worthy foes. And in this mythologised version of the wars, mutual respect forged on the battlefield sows the seed, seeds for future harmony. And really, this, this idea that New Zealand had the best race relations in the world, which endures for so much of the 20th century, it has its, it has its origins in this myth-making around the New Zealand wars. A lot of the 50th anniversary um, events of the wars um, are even described as celebrations. Um, and this kind of imagined narrative of the wars is reflected in films and books and a lot of other places as well. It endures for a lot of the 20th century. But this dominant Pākehā version of the history has never been shared by Māori. You know, it's, it's hard to feel nostalgic about events in the past where our own ancestors had been killed your land's taken, your economy destroyed, and future generations condemned to lives of poverty as a result. While Pākehā publicly celebrated, many Māori communities continued to privately grieve, passing on the stories of these conflicts in their own spaces, and sometimes even in the names given to their children. So Muru, Mamai, and even Raupatu, um, for example, you know, not uncommon names in some of the areas that were affected by the wars. But by the 1970s, you get new and more more forceful Māori voices, combined with powerful revisionist accounts of this history by Michael King and others. Um, and these all but discredit the dominant Pākehā interpretation of the past. It was really no longer acceptable to celebrate the New Zealand Wars by the 1970s. I think the problem is that no new narrative emerged, um, or at least none that gained widespread Pākehā acceptance. And so we got this kind of uncomfortable silence, don't talk about the wars, just forget about it, um, you know, as if these things never happened. But I think it's time to move beyond that now. A lot of New Zealanders probably pass by sites of immense historical significance every day and they wouldn't even be aware of the fact that these places exist if they're there. Sometimes, as in the case of Arato Pa, roads are built deliberately through the middle of those places. And I suggest that's almost a deliberate act of cultural erasure. Not just forgetting, but actually destroying the physical remnants of that history as if, it, as if it never really existed in the first place. And I think it's time we protect and recognise these sites or what's left of them, because they're our link to that history. And, you know, it's incredibly powerful to visit these sites um, and, and to stand at Araka and Rangiafio or Gate Pa or many, many of the other places. And, and, and you know, to, to, to sense the tragedy of what took place at these places. And we know that young people, um, it's a really powerful thing for Rangatahi to visit these places, to learn about the history from Komata, to learn those stories about the history. And so we need to look after those sites. We need to do much better as a nation at looking after them. And, you know, ironically, as the... And, you know, so look after the sites, that's the first thing. Secondly, teach the history. Just teach it, you know, it's, it's that simple. The Otterhonga College, the Otterhonga College petition that led to the National Day of Commemoration for the New Zealand Wars, um, what that tells us is that young people themselves are calling for this. They want to learn this history. It just seems to be the adults, and especially the Ministry of Education, who have hang-ups about it. And I think, actually, we should let our rangatahi take the lead on this, because... They, they seem to have a better sense of the kind of country they want to grow up in, and it's, it's one that doesn't turn 
is back on its own path. They are actually, you know, ready to engage with this history and all of the groups that I've spoken to, the school groups I've spoken to in the last couple of years, they really get why this history matters to them and their communities and they're a real credit to their communities. So, learn about it, respect it, pass it on, make sure your children and their children learn these stories too. Not so they can feel guilty or ashamed about the actions of their ancestors, but so they can be big enough and brave enough to say, yes, this is part of our history too, along with all of those things we like to feel proud about as well. Um, all of those people who stood up against injustice from the, injustices from the past when they saw them. So, that, you know, it really is that simple. You know, look after the sites, teach the history, provide resources so that we can all learn about this history, because so many of us adults did not learn about that. We need to break the intergenerational cycle of ignorance around this history. We need to take ownership of our past and um, we need to stand up as a nation and, and say this is part of our story. We, we do acknowledge these darker episodes from our history. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.